if you want to give, if you want to donate to this, you will certainly help us. But at the end of the day, I will promise you, I will give you your money back if it doesn't happen. But you will be helped more than the people that you're helping. And I believe that with every bone in my, every pore in my body. Hi, I'm Jeff Krasnow, and welcome to Commune, where every week we explore the ideas, values, and practices that bring us together and help us live healthy and purpose-filled lives. Most of us think of charity as giving either money or time to those less fortunate. But originally, charity had a much broader meaning. Charity has its roots in the word caritas, which was the Latin translation for the Greek concept agape, or unconditional love of others. The word philanthropy, which first appeared in 500 BC in Aeschylus' Prometheus Bound, literally means love of man. Now, Western culture has evolved around this spiritual ethos that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And from this core belief, we have institutionalized giving back, creating thousands of nonprofit organizations and tax incentives for personal giving and corporate giving. On a societal level, we believe we have an obligation to others, as President Obama often said, to dull the sharper edges of capitalism. And this has shaped our modern understanding of the word and the concept charity. However, beyond the desire to help others, there may be another reason that we are drawn to giving. Now, Gandhi said, the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. On a very basic human level, the greater connection we feel to those around us, the happier we seem to be. So to answer this question, why we give, I went out and spoke with some people who devoted their lives to giving back. I started with Ron Kaplan. Ron is a successful music agent. He's the founder of Monterey International, a music booking agency which has now joined the Paradigm Agency. He's worked with the likes of Van Morrison, Roger Waters, Buddy Guy, and many other incredible musicians. But despite all of his professional success, Ron was looking for more purpose in his life. He'd given to charity, but you know, felt disconnected from his giving, writing checks and not really knowing where they were going. And then one day, walking the streets of Chicago, he discovered a need hidden in plain sight. I kept on seeing people on the street with plastic bags and ripped up suitcases and old kids' school bags and thinking, God, they're homeless, but they can't even carry their own stuff. It was horrible. I said, well, I wonder, was everyone ever given backpacks to the homeless? So I went online and I did some research and I realized, yeah, they're giving them recycled school bags or just things you could get at a department store or Kmart or whatever. And I said, you know, I should, I should try to think more about this. And then um, it just so happened, you know, you know, one of my clients who was playing a show, one of their fans was the owner of High Sierra. High Sierra is a maker of backpacks and bags, typically for hiking and camping. And I'd, I saw him a couple times, and then this was right at the Christmas, this was right around the holidays, 2011. I saw him at a show backstage. I said to him, look, I said, Hank, I have a question for you. What would you think if you and I partnered and made a backpack specifically for the homeless? And I expected him just to look at me and go, you're out of your mind. But he said, okay. You know, come on over to the um, 
um, the headquarters, which was outside of Chicago in the suburb. So right after the holidays, I went there, um, and uh, I walk in his office, and he has pictures of World War II soldiers with knapsacks walking in the rains and with ponchos, and he said, maybe something like this, right? And I go, exactly. Ron got to collaborate with lead designer Mike Angelini on the creation of City Pack, a backpack specifically designed for the homeless. The first pictures were pictures of a backpack that um, had an integrated poncho because it's raining, and the poncho was integrated in the bottom of the bag, and it would come out and cover the body in the bag. He figured that, you know, a bag like this, you need to have it safely to your body. So we created these anti-theft loops that they could put around their wrists or ankles at night if they were sleeping outside or even in a shelter. There's a lot of theft in shelters, too. But Mike and Ron didn't stop there in the design. They figured the only people that would truly understand the needs associated with the backpack were homeless people themselves. So they created a focus group. They brought 20 homeless people into the office, gave them a hot lunch, and presented the prototype of the bag, and then asked for input. We showed them the bag, and they really liked some of the features. And, you know, they, they felt that there were some things missing. So they, the one thing that was really, you know, one of the most important discoveries of that focus group was that homeless people have paperwork. They have identification. They have hospital records. They have insurance papers. They have papers, and they're always getting wet. So we then went back to the drawing board and designed the only zipper on the bag was inside the compartment that would keep all their paperwork dry. And the reason you don't have zippers on the outside is they rust and they fall apart. So there's no zippers on the bag. The bag, um, another feature that we that we created was a very heavy-duty Velcro strips on the flaps. So if it's on your back and you hear it, you'll really hear it loudly open up. So Ron and High Sierra produced the pack and started partnering with all sorts of homeless organizations and shelters to distribute them across the United States and Canada. Through this process of working with organizations, I would work with, you know, you know, Jewish organizations, Catholic organizations, and I would meet all these different people. Um, and, you know, one meeting I had with a rabbi, it was, you know, when you, it was a tradition in Judaism to always have dollars in your pocket, so you could always give something to somebody. And when you give something to somebody, you don't ask what they're going to do with it. And so we decided that giving backpacks, although is not the end of the line for homelessness, it makes life's on the streets a little bit easier. It brings a sense of dignity and most of all, a sense of organization. I mean, how, you can't wake up in the morning and put all your belongings in three plastic bags and go to work. You can't go to a, an interview with three plastic bags. You can't go to a grocery store. So this gave people something that wow, there is somebody that's actually making something for us. Since its inception in 2012, Ron has distributed nearly 50,000 city packs to homeless people around the United States and Canada. So Ron, you've achieved a lot in your life, and your job is pretty fulfilling. You get to work with highly creative people, you make a good living, and you're respected by your peers. So it seems to me like it would be pretty easy just to kind of kick back and enjoy the fruits of your labor. But that's not what you're doing. You're spending a lot of energy and time and resources on City Pack, and I guess I'm wondering, why? Well, number one, it feels good. It feels good to see people on the streets with your bags. And I've been in different cities and just, you know, 
just run into somebody with a bag and I'd stop by, I'd tell them who I was and they'd greet me and thank me and it's so reassuring. In my business, you don't get that kind of connection, you know. This is a very interesting connection that, you know, you immediately have this joyful feeling. It's almost like you feel like crying sometimes because look at what you've done, you know. You've, you know, people have come up to me and said, you know, if I hadn't had this, I don't know what I would have done. Or my bag is my home. I was so inspired by Ron's story that I bought 50 city packs from him to distribute at the Church of the Blessed Sacrament here in L.A. The Blessed Sacrament has an old convent that Father Frank Buckley has transformed into a center that provides services for the homeless. So last year, on January 1st, I took my three daughters down to Blessed Sacrament to a New Year's Day party that Frank had organized for the homeless community. Now, there were all sorts of complaints from my kids. Most humorous comment, Dad... Why are we going to a church on a holiday? Uh, My arguments about starting the year giving to others were pretty readily dismissed. Nevertheless, I got them all moping into the car. And when we got there, the kids handed out coffee and burritos to a group of about 30 homeless men and women. And we all sat in a circle. There was a woman who played guitar and we sang some songs and then went around the circle and everyone shared their goals for the upcoming year. Most people's goals were about getting off the street. And we put on a boom box with some 70s disco music and everyone started boogieing. My young daughters danced totally freely with the group, like swapping partners, people were holding hands, hugging. And, you know, I wondered how long it had been since any of these people had ever interacted with children, let alone feel the fresh skin of a child. And children are generally taught to avoid homeless people who watch parents like pull their kids to the other side of the street at their sight. But on this day, these folks were laughing and smiling, and for a few moments they felt safe, able to be vulnerable and joyful. After a few hours, we packed it up back in the Prius, and this time, on the way home, the vibe was totally different. My three daughters were animated, they were alive with energy, they were reliving the morning, telling stories. And, you know, they had given these folks a gift with their childlike unselfconscious exuberance, but in many ways they had received the greater gift. They were bathed in the warm glow of giving. Father Frank had created something really special at this church. The Church of the Blessed Sacrament is located smack in the middle of Hollywood. And while Hollywood is famous for movie stars and glitz and glamour, today's Hollywood is pretty rough. There are a lot of homeless on the streets and a lot of drugs. Seven years ago, the Blessed Sacrament received a grant from the city to renovate the church's old convent, and this gave Frank an opportunity to reimagine how to treat the homeless. As a clinical psychologist, Frank developed a unique approach. Instead of focusing on what is wrong with someone, he focuses on what is right. I caught up with Frank and asked him about the mindfulness program. I guess this model is different because it's really based on wellness and like building on people's strengths. And I really think at the heart of it all is 
like losing this whole thing of Department of Mental Health and diagnoses and what's the problem. And it comes out of work Herb Yellum did at Stanford. He's a clinical psychologist, expert on group therapy. And he said, you treat a diagnosis very little as possible. You treat the human person, anything becomes possible. So it's really about kind of that Jesuit thing of treating the whole person, body, mind, soul. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I mean, you mentioned mindfulness. Um, are you actually leading mindfulness sessions for homeless people? Yes. And believe it or not, to my surprise, I, gosh, 15, 20 years ago, I did, when I was at Jesuit Formation, I did a mindfulness class. I was at an all-boy private high school for high school uh, seniors, I think it was. And they were so awful in the mindfulness group. I thought if I could get through it, I would never do mindfulness again. <laughs> and I kind of kept to my promise. And I really, I went, that's when I went to Kripalu and got to uh, learn how to teach yoga. And then the kids love yoga, you know? So I never looked back until maybe four years ago, five years ago, I was at Homeboys and then here at the center. And I was asked to do a mindfulness class. And to my surprise, I think because people's life on the street, Jeff, is so chaotic that they absolutely love mindfulness. So it's really my favorite group of the week. Every Tuesday at 10, we lower the lights, we light a candle, put, uh, put um, some, uh, some Tibetan uh, bells on, and then we sit for 20 minutes and we have green tea afterwards and talk about what the experience was like. And it's really... It's really um, it's kind of amazing. People on the streets actually do a lot better than I do. Like they're really, it's, it's, it's really a good experience. And, and have you started to see positive progress and effects um, with some of the folks that ha have come in um, on a regular basis uh, to the center? I mean, Jeff, honestly, it's like on a daily basis. Like I, I know all the research cause I'm a clinical psychologist, but like to actually see, the transformational possibility of relationships, mm. you know, like at the end of the day, that's what transforms people that uh, when people start connecting, it's like you just get out of the way and the miracles start to happen. And right. I mean, it's, I could tell you today, I had a guy who was, who's been a regular here. He got arrested because he was, drinking and he was in someone's backyard and the police took him. I wrote some letters to the judges. Anyway, he got out. He was back in the group today and we do this. It's the number one evidence-based practice for flourishing called WWW, what went well. And you have to, with no negativity, name three things that went well. And he's like, last night I was lit. I was sleeping on the street and I woke up and someone came by and gave me a, uh, bag full of sushi and I've never had sushi before. And it was the most delicious meal I ever had. You know, those stories, you know, when you hear them, you know, they kind of, they just fill your heart with joy, you know, the, and, you know, yeah. I, I, and I wonder because, you know, Frank, you have to work every day in kind of some very depressing and difficult situations. Um, but every time I talk to you, um, you seem just kind of full of energy 
and and enjoy. And I wonder if kind of what you do, despite it being kind of difficult, kind of energizes you or, or wires you in a way um, around your giving. I mean, have you thought about that? Why do you do what you do? You know, interesting, Jeff. I just did an eight-day in Santa Cruz, an eight-day silent contemplative retreat with a German Jesuit that's a model from a 90-year-old Argentinian Jesuit who was in a prison camp, and it was no talking, no reading, no praying for eight days. And after day two, I was ready to get back in my Toyota and come home. Like It was too much silence. But I kind of stuck around, and it really gave me a little insight into why I tell people all the time I feel like the luckiest Jesuit alive because of the work I get to do. And if there's been anything that's been challenging with this work, Jeff, and I think you'll get this living here in L.A., like as soon as people know you're a clinical director of a homeless center, I just met with a federal judge last night, the first thing they want to know is, how do you solve homelessness? And I usually want to jump on my bandwagon of treating the most chronically homeless, blah, blah, blah. And it really goes nowhere. And what I got on this retreat, kind of like on day eight, the very last day was, let's see, how do I want to say this? Like, well, Dorothy Day, who started the Catholic worker, she used to always say, God will not judge us by our successes but how faithfully we serve those on the margins or the periphery. And like what we do here best, Jeff, we don't house a lot of people at the end of the day. We do get some really chronically homeless people housed, and that's amazing when it happens. But I think like what gives my life joy is like we get to open the doors to people who are literally living on the church steps underneath the freeways, and we get to open the doors, enjoy a little community, connect with each other, uh, share together in ways that most people don't get to share. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, I can't wait to get to work. You know, we have this sort of modern understanding of charity, which is kind of this, it's very institutionalized, you know what I mean? But when, yeah. when you go back to like Caritas, you know, or, or some of the original concepts of charity, um, you know, in the Old Testament even, um, it's really about unconditional love of man, of our fellow humans. And it mm. speaks more um, to the hardwired need that we have for connection. You know, it's uh, uh, not to keep quoting Dorothy Day, but I just read a book on her, and I think she's exactly right. We've all known the long loneliness, and the only solution is community. After talking to Frank and Ron, I was like, 
wow, these guys have a lot in common. But they have a ton of energy. They're super positive. And like Frank said, they just can't wait to get to work. Now, this got me wondering if there isn't something physiological going on. Like, what's your brain look like on charity? To answer this question, I talked to Dr. Jordan Grafman, a neuroscientist at Northwestern's Feinberg School of Medicine who has conducted studies on the brain and giving. So we asked healthy volunteers in this particular study to uh, do a task where they would get a certain amount of money, real money, and they would decide whether to spend that money or to withhold that money from certain organizations organizations that maybe they agreed with, organizations that they didn't agree with, and then we would really donate that money. <laughs> so they got it. But on top of that, we put them into an MRI scanner when they were, when they were doing the donations. So we could measure the different parts of the brain that were engaged and activated and involved with the donation task. And we just thought we'd see the frontal lobes involved. Now, we did, and that's part of the picture. But the, my team uh, that was working on this with me uh, and that were actually down in the scanner doing the studies, uh, one day they came up after some analyses and said, you got to look at this. You know, you're not going to believe this. And it turned out that when people were donating, giving money to organizations they agreed with, that a system in the brain that's sort of in the middle of the brain and starts in the brain stem and goes all the way to the frontal lobes and is known for re feeling reward or at least helping us perceive reward and then reinforcing us because it's rewarded to do the same behavior again was highly activated. And, and, and this was in the act simply of giving, not receiving. So we had a condition, actually, in the task where people just got money, and that surely activated the same system. They got money, and it was, a, it was a reward to them, and they felt good. It turned out, though, when they were giving money, that same system was even more activated. So this is curious, um, because I think, you know, we've been taught, uh, I mean, a lot of us have read Darwin, and, mm -hmm. and you know, we kind of get this sense that our brain, our brain is kind of hardwired for self-preservation um, mm -hmm. or for, um, for our own survival. But it seems like your findings might suggest that we might also be hardwired to give <laughs> despite, yeah. despite what that might you know, mean for our, for our own um, gain. Yeah, I, I would say that that is absolutely correct and is probably a, a, a brain device to enable us to survive. And in the sense that it's a social activity, mm -hmm. whether, we're, whether we're, and we can perceive many things as social activities. The most common way, of course, is you're giving to another human being or a group of people. And even in a more abstract or even in a fantastic way, you could say if you help a plant grow or you, you take care of a pet or you try to preserve other living things, you're also giving. And so that act of giving, I think, to many people in, the mo in modern times, probably in tries to ensure a sense of cohesion 
or, or membership or involvement with other beings. And I think there was something that was very important in those actions that led the brain to incorporate that into the reward system. Because if you go back and you say, okay, I get that, Jordan. You know, let's go back in evolution and go to the very beginning. And here we got hunter-gatherers and people are trying to cooperate to get enough food to live through the week. Uh, they have to protect each other from perhaps warring tribes or predators. And they're, in that case, you're really looking out for yourself and your immediate others when you're, when you're sort of sharing and giving. It, it, the the elements there are quite primitive and and very crucial to survival. But we live now, for the most part, in a in a much more comfortable and complex environment. And in that kind of environment, the very anterior part of the frontal lobes becomes important to helping us control our our motives to just help ourselves versus doing something that you're just going to give to somebody. And you, you can see this in, uh, sometimes in its most dramatic form when you see anonymous donors. That is, they give to an organization or a person, and they just don't want to be recognized for what they're doing. Now, even in that case, you could perhaps argue if you, you may have a religious motive for doing that, that you're not worried about somebody else in this life caring whether you do it or not, but you're worried about whether your particular version of God cares. So it, it's hard to rule out every possible reason to engage in, in ph philanthropic behavior. But one thing we do know, that there's a happy medium of this behavior where it really does help other people, besides helping us feel better about ourselves. So there, the brain is, is at least partly designed to promote this kind of behavior. Right. And, you know, I think... Um... A lot of people are familiar with um, with kind of their opioid receptors as it pertains to kind of endorphins and engaging yeah. in, you know, activities um, like exercise or, I don't know, eating eating chocolate or something like that. You know, sure, sure. is there, it, what is kind of the, is there a parallel there um, between different kinds of activities and um, and what you've seen in your studies around the brain's uh, chemical reaction to giving. Sure. So I think there's going to be some overlap between what you might experience. I mean, clearly some people run for charity, right? That, that's sort of the uh, optimal engagement <laughs> right. because you're getting the endorphins and all the other chemicals by giving as well. But... You, I mentioned oxytocin before, and when that's released in greater amounts, it certainly helps not just humans but other animals as well bond to each other, and 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 probably that shows up in greater trust, etc. But you know what's it's very interesting, and we haven't done these studies, but they're well known uh, where. What motivates somebody to give sometimes is not learning numbers or facts. It's not knowing, given the example you gave uh, earlier, uh, it's not knowing uh, that, that, say, 100,000 people are dying of AIDS in Africa. It's showing the one person who's right. dying of AIDS. Right. And, yeah. you make, and you make that connection, and it's likely that a lot of charitable giving 
begins in an evolutionary sense with working one-on-one with a person. You're not working about, you're not worried about uh, millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people there. You're worrying about the person that you and you and that other person you're hunting, or you're worrying about somebody who wants to really go out of the way to cook you something better. And so you're worried about that person. And so it's, it starts with an individual relationship. And I, I think we still have in our brain that as a primary motivator for charitable giving, even if we like to say we know it's a big problem, we're still touched by the, that individual. And there's lots of research that shows people give more under those conditions. Yeah, there's a great charity called Kiva. It's a microfinancing platform that allows you to give to a specific individual or group, and you can log into their profile and check on their progress. And that leads actually perfectly into our takeaways for today's show. Now, it's pretty clear that giving to others is also giving to yourself, but not everyone can devote their entire lives to giving back like Frank and Ron. So here are some helpful tips that can maximize your happiness around giving. Number one, give to specific tangible projects. This provides you with a feeling of direct impact, like the Kiva example I gave, where you can give directly to a person or a group and connect with the direct effects of your giving. Number two, give frequently and in smaller amounts. Now, studies have shown that fulfillment around giving is not connected with the size of the gift, so giving on a consistent basis maximizes happiness and keeps you engaged. And lastly, give without expectation. The altruistic high associated with giving is lessened when you are looking for something in return. So keep your giving unconditional and non-transactional. Again and again, we hear about how happiness around giving is tied to this primitive need we have for connection. On a biological level, our brains reward giving through releasing chemicals that give us that warm glow. On a spiritual level, it's the ego that tells us we are what we have, that puts us in conflict with others, that sees ourselves as separate from others. But when we give, we shed the false self of the ego and we connect to our infinite soul. It unites us with our divine nature. I'll leave this episode with a wonderful quote from the philosopher Eric Fromm. Giving is the highest expression of potency. In the very act of giving, I experience my strength, my wealth, my power. This experience of heightened vitality and potency fills me with joy. I experience myself as overflowing, spending, alive, hence as joyous. Giving is more joyous than receiving, not because it is a deprivation, but because in the act of giving lies the expression of my aliveness. That's it from the commune for this week. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. And maybe drop us a review. It'll make my mom proud. I'll see you next week.